and welcome to Little Yo Pod, the podcast where we bring you stories and information from Yosemite National Park and the Sierra Nevada Mountains. I'm Laura Jackson, and on today's episode, I wanted to begin the first of three episodes on the famous Awani Hotel, the luxury hotel located in Yosemite Valley. So one of the programs my department offered throughout the year was the historic Awani Hotel Tour. I have given this tour more times than I can remember at this point, but it was among the most intimidating tours for me at first. There were a couple of programs like that, and I touched on this in my Starry Skies episode, and these were the programs that would give new staff members major anxiety and the ones that they would push off the longest, and those were the astronomy program and the hotel tour. I don't know why the hotel tour was so scary for everyone else, but I think for me it had something to do with the fact that the hotel is so famous and the tour is so popular and my department's been doing it for a long time. My greatest fear was always that some mega nerd would call me out on my mispronunciation of something or that I would make a mistake in my research or that my guests wouldn't be happy with the tour. Needless to say, all of those things happened at some point, but they didn't kill me. And for the most part, people were thrilled with the tour and even with me as where I lacked in knowledge of where the sewage from the Awani ended up. And yes, that was a question on one tour I made up for in boundless enthusiasm. I herded my crowd from room to room, regaling them with information on the German Gothic inspired chandeliers in the registration lobby, the battleship grade linoleum patent pending at the time of installation that made up the inlaid mosaics on the floor of the hotel's entrance. They gasped at my informing them of how the front of the hotel was originally supposed to be the back of the hotel, which the designer had to flip at the last minute due to a major flaw with a lack of exhaust ventilation of the porticoche, and that's why you have to pass the loading dock to get into the building. But really, everyone who comes to the Awani wants to know one big thing. Why was it built? A luxury hotel in a national park seems out of place. It certainly wasn't the first thing I thought of when I arrived in Yosemite. In fact, I was rather taken aback by its existence. When I'm asked this question outright on the tour, I ask the inquirer why they think it was built. Without pause, they usually would say, for the rich people. And I tell them, they are 100% correct. Then everyone looks at me, blinking with expectation of an explanation, and I say, that's it, end of tour, thank you for coming, and pretend to walk away. We all laugh, and some people probably think, oh no, not a funny tour guide. But most of them stick around, armoring themselves for more information, peppered with terrible dad jokes. Every guide has a different way of presenting the hotel, and mine happened to be humor. It had to be, because if I did it any other way, I don't think I probably could have done it. Because the fact is, the Iwani Hotel is a point of contention for a lot of people, especially when they learn the history of the parcel of land the hotel sits on. It was once and for a long time the site of the Awanichi village called Wiskala. The people of the village probably lived there for hundreds of years before they were forced out of Yosemite Valley by the Mariposa Battalion in 1851. At that time, the village was burned to the ground so that the Awanichis could not return to it. So that a luxury hotel now exists on this space that was built with the express intent to accommodate wealthy people visiting national parks who didn't want to get their hands and feet dirty 
to me seemed to smack in the face of the tragic truth and history of the site. This was the attitude I had going into the hotel tour, and it took me to a dark place. I really wanted to tell the truth and expose the reality of the building. It made me feel physically ill to even think of not telling that story. But that anger just started eating me alive, and I couldn't maintain it. It wasn't the way I wanted to tell that story either, because although it is an important part of the story, it certainly isn't the only part of it. And who am I to tell anyone how they should feel about a place? That wasn't my job. My job was to share the story and let them decide how they wanted to feel, like I'm doing today. So over time, I began sharing the good things about the building and the positive influence it had on Yosemite and the national parks without neglecting to acknowledge the losses of the people who came before the hotel was built. The history of the Wani is not so black and white. Nothing ever is. If we can consider once again why the hotel was built, although it may not seem like it at first, the intention was quite admirable. Sure, the hotel was meant to accommodate people of wealth. In fact, when the hotel opened in July of 1927, not just anyone was allowed to enter. At the very least, one had to be well-dressed to gain admission to the building. There is a story of the time Herbert Hoover was denied access, even as a guest, because the doorman didn't recognize him dressed in the clothes he had used to go fishing. So how does a place that so blatantly practiced discrimination play into the National Park story? Well, the Iwani was built for rich people to enjoy, but that was precisely the point. Because that's where the money for the parks comes from. (laughs) Or where it used to come from in large part. Where the federal government and the money brought in from tourism fell short, the wealthy would pick up the slack. And there was no person who understood this concept better than the first director of the National Park Service, Stephen T. Mather. Stephen Mather was a self-made millionaire in the borax industry and a genius of advertising. He was the creator of the advertising campaign 20 Mule Team Borax for the Pacific Coast Borax Company. After he departed from that company in 1903, Mather created his own competing Brox company and by 1914 was a man of significant means. He retired at that point to pursue other interests and do some traveling. Mather visited parks in Europe and in the United States, and he had become dismayed at the deteriorating conditions of the parks in America. In Yosemite, for instance, the meadows were being grazed to the dirt by herds of sheep and other livestock. There were dilapidated hotels and no law enforcement looking after the place. Now this bothered Stephen Mather enormously because he was an ardent fan of natural spaces. He was a member of the Sierra Club and a conservation group founded by Theodore Roosevelt called the Boone and Crockett Club. And he counted the famous naturalist and Yosemite enthusiast John Muir among his friends. Mather contacted the Secretary of the Interior after visiting the national parks to express his disappointment with their management, or lack thereof. In an apocryphal account of what happened next, the Secretary of the Interior, Franklin Lane, reportedly replied, Dear Steve, if you don't like the way the national parks are being run, come on down to Washington and run them yourself. It was later discovered that this was an inflated version of the story, and the interaction was much more cordial than that. Regardless, Mather was invited to come to Washington, D.C. to assist in running the national parks, and he accepted, reluctantly. He didn't necessarily want to go back to work, but I think he may have felt that anyone else would have mucked it up. In 1916, the National Park Service was created 44 years after the first national park was founded in uh, 1872, and in 1917, Mather was appointed as its first director. 
This was also the first year that the federal government allotted a budget for the national parks and the national monuments. $19,500. I think you may be starting to see where outside money would fit into the picture. $20,000 or $19,500 is not a lot of money, not even for those days. Today, that would amount to less than $500,000. Just to put that into perspective, in 2020, the National Parks requested $2.4 billion for operations. And from what I understand, that amount still leaves the park way short for project funding. Still, Mather was not dismayed, and he had a plan for the parks. He was going to create the National Park brand, where the finest scenery accompanied the finest lodging and finest dining experiences, not only in the National Park, parks, but in the world. Okay, I hear you saying, so he needs money. So why doesn't he just ask people for money? Well, he did try that for a while. Mather traveled the country speaking on behalf of the national parks, showing patrons photos and paintings of the landscape. But as anyone who has ever visited Yosemite knows, you really have to see the place to believe it. And not only that, you have to experience it with all of your senses. It is too special a place to be condensed to photos and personal stories. Everything changes when you enter Yosemite. And I believe Mather knew this more than almost anyone. Yosemite wasn't just a place he loved. It was a place where he sought refuge. You see, Stephen Mather suffered from debilitating bipolar disorder and depression. It was so bad, he would have to take leave from work for extended periods for hospitalization. For much of his tenure as director of the Park Service, Mather was incapacitated by his disease, and his assistant, Horace Albright, would fulfill the work for him. They kept the whole thing very quiet, and not many people knew of Mather's condition until after his death. It has been reported that when Mather was hospitalized, he could bring two personal items with him, and both of them were pictures of Yosemite. I can't say what his personal relationship was with the place, but I believe it was very powerful. And I think that's why he wanted to bring people into the parks so they could experience the place and make a connection as he had. He had to make people care about the parks and love them and want to protect them. And to do that, he had to bring them in. And to do that, he would need a place for the people of wealth and influence to enjoy the Yosemite experience with the accommodations they were accustomed to. But wait, I hear you say, where is he going to get the money to build a luxury hotel? Well, he had a plan for that as well. Now, while Mather was no stranger to making private donations himself, he actually paid for half of the Tioga Pass Road and donated it to Yosemite. He did not, however, have unlimited resources. So in 1925, a contractual merger between two competing concessionaires in Yosemite formed the Yosemite Park and Curry Company with the proviso that the company begin developing plans for a luxury hotel. The newly formed company agreed, seeing this as a good financial opportunity, and started considering locations for the building. They decided on a sunny spot under the Royal Arches, the iconic arching formations on the northeast wall of Yosemite Valley. The site had at one time been an Indian village, then a homestead, then a farm, then at the time a stable area. They chose that spot because it received a lot of sun, even in the winter, which is really hard to come by in a valley surrounded by 3,000-foot-tall cliffs. Some areas of Yosemite Valley only see a meager five minutes of sunshine a day during the cold winter months, such as in Curry Village, where the ice rink lives. 
which the locals have dubbed Little Siberia. The site location for the hotel was also private. There would be no through road and it would not be on the way to anything, ensuring its guests would enjoy peace and quiet away from the campgrounds and the bustling village areas. It was the perfect place. The fact that the location housed a stable area that would need to be raised before construction began was also significant. The private automobile had just started making its way into the public scene and paved roads were replacing stagecoach lines. Soon, there would be no need for public stables anymore. America was entering a modern era full of glamour and new insights. It was a time of romantic notions and hope. There were women at the poles and jazz on the radio. Guys were loosening their neckties and dolls were hiking up their hemlines. It was the Roaring Twenties, and Yosemite was in the crosshairs of progressivism. The New Age was coming, and things would never be the same again. This concludes part one of the Awani Hotel. Join us in two weeks for part two as I discuss the building of the hotel and all the crazy stipulations demanded for the building. You are going to be amazed at what the architect and the builders had to contend with and what they got accomplished in a very short amount of time. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Little Yo Pod. If you like this podcast and you have a little bit of time, please consider giving us a rating and a review to help more people find the podcast. If you want more Little Yo Pod, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Little Yo Pod, where you can also contact me. Or if you're really old school like me, you can send an email to littleyopod at gmail.com. And if you want even more Little Yo Pod, well, just more me actually, I have started a Patreon page for the podcast where I have included bonus material, including silly videos, behind the scenes discussions, and additional audio recordings. Patreon is a great way to support artists. By subscribing to an artist page, you help keep the podcast going with a small financial contribution starting at just $3 a month. $3 a month! A pumpkin spice latte costs $4.25. Just think, for less than the price of a pumpkin spice latte, you can help keep the lights on at Little Yo Pod for another month. This week's fun fact, while the film was not actually recorded at the Awani, the interior was the inspiration for the interior set designs for the Stanley Kubrick classic 1980 film The Shining. So if you've never visited the Awani Hotel, you can actually watch The Shining and get a pretty good idea of what the interior looks like. That's going to wrap it up for this episode of Little Yo Pod. I'm Laura Jackson. Thanks so much for listening and have a beautiful day.